Satara Satishri Srimad is divine grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj Prabhupada Ki Jai. His confounder, Acharya Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai. Nantakoti Vaishnava Rinda Ki Jai. Namacharya Shri Haridas Thakur Ki Jai. Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nichananda Shri Dwaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhaktivinda Ki Jai. Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopina Shai Mukunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Ki Jai. Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai, Navadrip Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Ganga Mai Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Rinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga, all glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Goravani Pacharane Nirvasesa Sanyavadi Paskatyade Satarane Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Padakamalam Sri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Jaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's June 21st, 2012, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 18, Text 17. Tanaparam punyam asamvritartam Akyanamatyadbutayoganishtam Akyayarantacharitopapanam Tat. Therefore, Naha unto us, Param Supreme Punyam Purifying. Asamvrita Artam Asamvrita Artam 
As it is. Akyanam. Narration. Ati. Very. Adbuta. Wonderful. Yoga Nishtam. Compact in Bhakti Yoga. Akyahi. Describe. Ananta. The unlimited. Acharita. Activities. Upapanam. Full of. Parikshitam. Spoken to Maharaj Parikshit. Bhagavata. Of the pure devotees. Abhiramam. Particularly very dear. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Thus, please narrate to us the narrations of the unlimited, for they are purifying and supreme. They were spoken to Maharaj Parikshit, and they are very dear to the pure devotees, being full of bhakti yoga. Purport. What was spoken to Maharaj Parikshit, and what is very dear to the pure devotees, is Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad Bhagavatam is mainly full of the narrations of the activities of the Supreme Unlimited, and therefore it is the science of bhakti yoga, or the devotional service of the Lord. Thus it is para, or supreme, because although it is enriched with all knowledge and religion, it is specifically enriched with the devotional service of the Lord. Tana param punyam asamritartam akyanam akyabhuta yoga nishtam akyayaranta charito papanam parikshitam bhagavata atbiramam Thus, please narrate to us the narrations of the unlimited, for they are purifying and supreme. They were spoken to Maharaj Parikshit, and they are very dear to the pure devotees, being full of bhakti yoga. So, artam. We have the word here, artam. And generally, we translate artam as economic development. Uh, the word artam literally means a goal, a benefit, uh, something that is gives us what we want. Uh, the uh, the other day we were trying to convince one of my grandsons to do his chores nicely, and my son said to him, "Well, when you go and work for those devotees, you do it very nicely." He said, "Yeah, but then I get money from my chores. I don't get money." And my his father said, "Well, but for your chores, you get happiness." So people are thinking that they're willing to do practically anything uh, for money. But really, people want money, artam, because of the benefit it gives them. What we really are willing to work for is benefit. 
And here this word asamvrita means uncovered, real. So Prabhupada's translating asamvrita artam as as it is. It's the real thing. It's the real benefit. So we're all looking for benefit. We're all looking for some kind of artam, some kind of wealth, if not necessarily in terms of cash, uh, some sort of opulence that will benefit us. The other day I was hearing Prabhupada say how the six opulences, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation, are also part of the soul to a small degree. And we are looking for these things. That's what we want. And we want the real benefit. Just like in modern society, uh, often uh, wealth is not real wealth. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to lose your wealth overnight just because of some fluctuations of the stock market. That's not real wealth. Uh, Real wealth is in things that have to do with uh, natural resources and animals, land, food, and metals, and uh, precious gems and minerals. So something that's real. So we are accustomed in modern society that most of our so-called benefits are false. Just like when I travel, I stay in various places. Sometimes I stay in devotees' homes. Sometimes I stay in temples. I was in the home of some devotees, actually more than once, who eat mostly food that they're buying from the shops. And they were buying bread in sealed packets. So this bread had been cooked who knows how many months previous. And it was filled with all kinds of chemicals to preserve the bread. To keep it artificially soft. So that's not real benefit. You're not going to get real benefit from eating such food. And you're not going to be nourished. You're just going to become actually weakened and diseased. So in this modern age, we are accustomed to things that are not as it is. We don't get a samvritta artam. We don't get the uncovered, the real, the authentic benefit. We get things, of course, in the material world, we're saying this age, but in general in the material world, maya is that which is not. And in Kali Yuga, there's just a lot more of the that which is not. <laughs> more prevalent, there's more coverings. Just like we say there's only one religious principle left, truthfulness. And I tell you, there's not a whole lot of that either. That's the ultimate religious principle, isn't it? Something that's authentic, something that's uncovered. So in the material world, we're presented with things that appear to be of our benefit, but are actually not. And when we talk about getting rid of our unartas, unarta means something that doesn't give benefit. And that's actually harmful. So what, why do we keep our unartas? Because we think that they're artas. We think that they're actually good for us. As Krishna says in the 16th chapter, the demons are come ashrita. They take shelter of lust. Or earlier he says... Ahankara astrita, they take shelter of false ego. So the materially conditioned soul actually takes shelter under something that's not real benefit. Something where the real nature of it 
is covered. When I first became involved with Krishna consciousness, I wrote a poem where I compared Maya to drops of poison covered with candy. So you can't see their real nature. They're, they're not as they are. They are covered. And therefore, when we do things in a materially conditioned way, we get the opposite result. Prahlad Maharaj explains this so nicely, that as soon as we look for happiness, our misery begins. As soon as we think, I need to get happiness independent of Krishna, and that's my artha, then we become covered. And we simply suffer. I was trying to, I'm not sure how successful I was, but I was trying to counsel a devotee one time who was very, I was struggling with being very critical of the people uh, that this devotee was working with. And this criticism was really straining relationships and, and actually harming the other people this person was working with. It was becoming kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when I was speaking to this devotee, the devotee said, well, if I don't think this way, then I'm just going to be naive. I'll just get taken advantage of. I, I don't want to be a fool. I want to have proper discrimination. So this is, this is just one example of the way in which we take the things that we're doing, which are actually harming us and harming others, and we see them as having some benefit. Well, I need to assume that everyone's motivations and everyone's intentions are the lowest possible because otherwise I might become fooled. Let me never ascribe any good motives to anybody because better I just assume that everyone is evil. If you can think of anything that we're attached to, it's like that. We give some reason why it's a real benefit when actually it's killing us. One can see this, again, in gross things like eating food full of preservatives and chemicals or having wealth that's false wealth. This is true for all of our material attachments, gross and subtle. So here the sages are intelligent enough to look for the asamrita artam, the real artam, the real benefit what will actually give us what we want. Of course, the irony is that even those of us who've also found this real benefit, after all, uh, all of us right now are absorbed, hopefully, in the Bhagavatam, still we may have some hesitation. So therefore, the Bhagavatam is glorified. And I'd like to go through the glorification here. And why is it that this Bhagavatam, hearing and reciting this Bhagavatam, gives us authentic benefit? We see it's called param. It's called supreme. It's the top. It's the best. Everybody wants to have the best. Of course, again, in the material world, we can't always afford the best. We don't always have the karma for the best. So we have to settle for something else. And the nature, again, of being in maya 
is that we sometimes take something that's not the best and make it look like it. You know, a copy. Something that's uh, phony. A piece of glass that people will think is a diamond and so forth. But all of us are looking for the best. We want to live in the best place. We want to go to the best schools. We want to wear the best clothes. We want to eat the best food. We want to have the best friend. So this Bhagavatam is actually the best. You cannot get something that's better. And it is very wonderful. Adbuta. Of course, we use this word Adbuta daily in our prayer to Nisingadev. Tavakara Kamala Varena Kam Adbuta Shringam. So we're saying that, Lord Nisingadev, your hands are very soft like a lotus flower, but yet you have these uh, shringam. Shringam means like a peak, like a mountain peak, something that's very sharp. Adbuta shringam, your nails, naka abuta shringam, your nails, naka, are wonderfully sharp. So this narration is wonderful. It's full of opulence, adbuta it means opulence, incredible, amazing, uh, something that's uh, awe-inspiring. So all of us also want this. We want something that's amazing, that's interesting, that's fascinating. In order for something to be amazing and fascinating, uh, just like with Nisingadev, we have this contradiction between the softness of his hands and the hardness of his nails. So amazing are things with inconceivable contradictions, and yet they're a whole. And we find that is true for the descriptions in the Bhagavatam, for the descriptions of Krishna himself that he's everything and yet he's not everything he's the smallest he's the biggest he's in one place and yet he's the fastest he's the most pure and yet he engages in activities like dancing with the gopis and stealing the butter and yet he purifies everything now this uh, a part of adbuta something you say how is that possible Oh, and we all enjoy things like this. We like to watch people engage in some sort of athletics or sports where we watch them and you say, how do they do that? You know, somebody who can do some yoga exercises where they twist their body and we, we like to see that. How do they do that? That is at Buddha. That is impossible. Or magic tricks. And Krishna is called Yogeshwar, the chief yogi who can do all sorts of mystical things. So we're all very attracted by that. Somebody who can defy the laws of nature and do the impossible. And Adbuta also means something always fresh. Not just the same magic tricks over and over and over again, but something new and constant newness. So Krishna and Krishna's activities are constantly new. This, we have this innate curiosity. So if you study about how to be a good teacher, they say one of the best ways to be a good teacher is to present every class as an unfolding mystery. 
And even if it's an unfolding mystery about something inconsequential and not even very relevant to the lives of the students, just because it's an unfolding mystery, people will be enchanted. So Krishna is an unfolding mystery. He's constantly expanding in his activities and his capabilities, his, in his opulences. So Krishna can be in it himself, can be in a constant state of curiosity and mystery, and then, uh, how would you say, completion of the mystery or solving of the mystery, to expand the mystery and then to know himself, and then to expand again, and then to increase his knowledge of himself. Just like Krishna in his pastimes, he likes to have the boys go inside Agasura where he can think, oh, now what do I do? If I kill Agasura, the boys are inside of Agasura. They'll also die. How will I save the boys and kill Agasura since the boys are in the Gasura's body? What do I do? So Krishna has many pastimes where he's thinking, what do I do? How can I understand this? And although we could say that Krishna consciousness answers all philosophical questions, which it does, and that it's a comprehensive system of philosophy, you never reach a point of total mastery. So motivational theory also says this, that people are motivated by achieving mastery, but the ultimate motivation is something where you never achieve complete mastery and you never can where there's always some room to go up. And Prabhupada talks about this, how the managers should always present some fresh challenge to the devotees. Sometimes Prabhupada would say that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu or a Vaishnava like Bhakti Vinod could have converted the whole world to Krishna consciousness, but they left something for us to do. (laughs) So this always unfolding of doing and learning and discovering, uh, this is also Adbhuta. And the Bhagavatam is Adbhuta because it has layers of meaning. As one is reading the Bhagavatam, one always can find something new and exciting and wonderful. And of course the descriptions are of all kinds of magical and mystical and fantastic things. And then we have this word Yoga Nishtam, which is quite interesting because Prabhupada puts in the word to word as compact in bhakti yoga, in the translation he calls it full of bhakti yoga, and in the purport he says enriched. So nista, of course, has the word stum, or place, and nista, staying in that place, or Prabhupada, we usually describe nista as being fixed, immovable. So yoga nistam to be fixed in yoga, and of course Krishna explains this in the sixth chapter, how to be free from all miseries, one has to become fixed in yoga like a candle in a place without wind. That your consciousness is not moved from the lotus feet of the Lord. That then, And in that situation, what are you? You are enriched. Interesting, Prabhupada uses this word enriched, which also relates to what we started talking about with arta or wealth that your real benefit is you're full of the richness in a very concentrated form. Prabhupada's using the word here, compact. It's not diluted. So you're enriched with yoga. 
yoga, Prabhupada here is translating it as bhakti yoga. And you're enriched with yoga, which is you're connected with Krishna. You're connected with the source of everything. How are we ever going to get real benefit? We have to be connected with the source of benefit. And that is the reason, Prabhupada says, that the Bhagavatam is called Param, which we mentioned first, as supreme. Why is it the best? It's the best because although it gives things like, as Prabhupada says, all knowledge and religion, it's specifically enriched, Prabhupada says, with yoga. So it is the best because it's connecting us with the best. It's linking us with the best. It's putting us in touch with the best. And ananta, unlimited. Now we can say, well, the Bhagavatam itself is limited. It has a certain number of verses. But again, in depth, it is unlimited. And it's describing something that's unlimited that can be understood in an unlimited way. This again goes back to the idea of mastery. One never says, oh, now I, I know that. There's nothing more to know. There's nothing more to understand. There's nothing more to experience. Like we have this colloquial expression, been there, seen that, done that. I've already experienced that. But one will not say that in relationship to Krishna consciousness in the Bhagavatam. Because it is describing something that is unlimited. Always something more. Whenever you read through the Bhagavatam or study the Bhagavatam, even today's verse in purple, which is very short. And of course the Sanskrit of this verse is long, but the, the translation is quite short, and the purport is very short. So I've sometimes been in temples where if it's a short purport, they figure you don't have anything to say about it. You can talk even on verses with no purport. <laughs> but I was just one word of the Bhagavatam. Now sometimes that's a little hard for me to grasp if the word is something like cha or tat. But Mahaprabhu gave so many meanings of the word cha in the Atmarama verse. How many meanings did he give the Atmarama verse? 61, 64. And there were so many others. So just even this little verse, I'm sure, 100%, that if we asked 20 people to speak on this verse, they would each speak about 20 different things. And it would be possible to speak about 20 different things without touching any of the explanations of the other persons. In fact, we could give a a discourse for a year on one of these words, param, or adbhuta. So unlimited Materially, you reach a point of satiation. Materially, you reach a point where, okay, I've, I've gotten all I can get. Now it's time to move on. Now it's time to do something else. You know, I've done this. It was good. All right, fine. Now I'm finished with it. But one will never become finished with Bhagavatam. And then we have this word, Abhiramam. So Rama is pleasure. Something that gives pleasure. Abhirama. Prabhupada's translating this as particularly very dear. Now, because it's Bhagavat Abhirama, it's particularly very dear to the devotees. So, of course, that's especially significant because devotees are persons who are Atmarama. They are already satisfied. Now, they don't want anything that's false. So if it's dear to such persons, imagine how dear it is. 
I remember many years ago we had one devotee who gave us a, a nice donation for our Gurukula. And we had two large, I mean very large, like maybe four by three feet large, framed prints of a BBT painting of Vaikuntha. Just beautiful. So we offered, we, because we had two of them, we offered this donor that we could give him one of these pictures as a gift. And he said, I only take original artwork. I don't take a print. So if you have somebody who only wants the best and something's very dear to that person, imagine how wonderful and dear it is. So this word Abhirama can also mean charming or attractive and full of pleasure. So not only is it the best and is it wonderful, does it bring us yoga in a, in a concentrated form and it is unlimited, but it is also full of happiness and, and it's charming. And one will be very attached to it, something that's very dear, something one will like very much, something one will be able to relish. And then it is purifying, punyam. So punyam sometimes means pious activities, but it's cleansing. So of the five universal moral principles, according to empiric studies, one of them is purity. And from a biological point of view, we can understand why purity is a universal moral principle. Because when we have something that's impure, we become literally sick, physically. So everybody wants something that's pure. Everyone understands that something that's pure. Again, we're very related to this uncovered asamrita artam. But it also purifies us. Everybody likes to feel healthy and pure and vibrant to become purified of disease. I don't know, I've never heard of anybody who intentionally uh, gives himself some sort of disease. So I had a recent situation where I was visiting some devotees where the atmosphere was such on all levels that I felt health, completely healthy. I felt spiritually, mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthy. I felt like I was just being infused with life and health in that atmosphere. So that's the Bhagavatam, that it's purifying on, on the deepest level. And then I say, okay, it's, it's supreme, it's uncovered, real benefit, it's wonderful, it's compact or concentrated, linking with the di- divine, it's unlimited, it's enchanting and full of pleasure, even to those who have everything. But, come on, it's going to be some sort of dry philosophy. No. It's akyanam, it's a narration. Therefore, akyahi, please tell the story. The Bhagavatam is mostly stories. So a couple days ago, 
I was helping out my daughter-in-law here by teaching the Bhagavad Gita class because we're homeschooling to the teenagers. And my daughter-in-law is saying, oh, they often complain about the class, just listening to philosophy. So I asked the kids, what would you like? What would make the class interesting? And most of them says, stories. And we did a number of things besides that, but at the end of the class, when I asked for their feedback, they said, the class seemed shorter than it was. So psychological research has shown the value of stories. First of all, whenever someone tells a story, we become immediately attentive. It's quite interesting. You can see when you're speaking to a live audience, if you tell a story, particularly if you've studied how to be a good storyteller, people stop moving. They practically stop breathing they just become fully immersed in the story. So stories, much more than philosophy, capture people's attention. Especially, as we said earlier, if it's in the form of some sort of unfolding mystery. What happens next? What happens next? What happens next? How is this problem going to be solved? But stories also, uh, not only do they capture our attention, They're also, as it says here, enchanting. They're enjoyable. Practically speaking, everyone likes stories. It says how the Mahabharata was compiled for Kali Yuga, for persons who are not intelligent enough to study philosophy, but even people intelligent enough to study philosophy, like the heroes of the Bhagavatam, we find the Bhagavatam is primarily in the form of stories. The philosophy is interwoven into the stories often in the form of the dialogue and the, or the prayers of the participants. Of course, some sections of the Bhagavatam, especially in the second canto, are, are just straight philosophy. But even the philosophy, say, in the third canto, it's in the context of the story of Kapila Dev and Devahuti. Or the philosophy in the fifth canto is in the context of a story of Bharat and Rahugana. So even the extensive sections of philosophy, you know, or the philosophy in the seventh canto that Prahlad Maharaj speaks to his friends, it's in the context of a wonderful story. So they're charming. And stories bypass the conscious resistance that most conditioned souls have to receiving good instruction. We say, you know, a fool because they become angry upon receiving good instruction. Well, if that's the definition of a fool, then most of us conditioned souls, and I'm I'm including myself in that, are fools. Generally, when we're given good instruction, our hackles rise and we resist it. We take the good instruction as some sort of an insult. Oh, this person is giving me good instruction because they think that they're a fool or they think that I'm incompetent. I mean, most of us have to really be suffering before we're willing to hear good instruction about anything more than, you know, what road to go on. And some people won't even receive good instruction about what road to go on. But if something's in the form of a story, we're willing to hear it. You know, if somebody comes and says, tell the truth, we become offended. And if someone comes and tells us the story of the boy who cried wolf, we hear it. 
trauma. So why is that exactly? I mean, modern psychology, they have some theories how the enchantment and the absorption in stories puts the brain into different wavelengths. Uh, That might be the case. But certainly in a story, we can think it's not about me. It's indirect. And what's also interesting, fascinating about stories is that our values and our behavior and identity change when we hear things in the form of stories. Because again, according to modern psychology, that if you listen to a story in the mind, you are going through the motions of following the protagonist in that story. You are activating the same parts of the brain that you would activate if you were physically doing the action of the persons in the story. Therefore, those who, pre- who prepare persons for sporting events, coaches, sporting coaches, they have the athletes mentally go through the motions of the sport before they physically go through the motions of the sport. And they found that mentally going through them exercises the same parts of the brain and even the same muscles become activated in the body two-thirds of the extent than if you're doing it physically. So if a person is just lying in a chair, seemingly not moving and imagining themselves doing the sport, they are activating the muscles to two-thirds of the extent as they would if they were actually doing it. You're almost getting the experience. So when one hears stories... It's really as if you're there. And one takes on the values of the persons in those stories. What to speak of hearing stories about Krishna? At some point in hearing stories about Krishna, which are themselves purifying when properly heard and chanted, at some point, one will actually see those stories. I mean, even materially, if you listen to a story or read a story, your mind makes some pictures of the stories, but here we're talking about the transcendence. And by hearing those stories, at a certain point, one will get spiritual television. And those stories will actually manifest. And then at a certain point, one will enter into those stories. So, so in such a wonderful form, not as as simply just philosophical or logical points. Not just something that could appear to the conditioned souls as, oh, this is just theoretical. But in the form of narrations. And of course, these narrations are the ultimate truth. In one sense, Krishna's playful (laughs) sports Right. Playful sports are the opposite of what we think in this world as artam. We have play and we have work. <clears throat> and play is not really supposed to accomplish anything other than to refresh you for doing your work. We think work is the real deal. Work is what's actually artam. Work is what's actually useful. Whereas play is time-wasting, past times, we call it, to pass the time, to waste the time. But Krishna's past times, interesting English translation, since there's no time, or Krishna's lila, or sport, or krita, or play, is the actual benefit. Krishna doesn't have to do any work. So absorption in these pastimes of the Lord and the Lord's devotees 
that absorption is the ultimate benefit. So I don't think we could make these claims about anything in the material world. We couldn't say this is the supreme purifying, the uncovered real benefit that's wonderful, that's enriched in linking with the supreme who is unlimited, that is enchanting and attractive and pleasurable even to those who have everything and is in the form of charming stories of reality. So when we have such a wonderful benefit, a wonderful book, one hesitates even to call it a book, as if that's almost like it's demeaning it, you know. (laughs) When we have such a wonderful Bhagavatam, how can we fail to spend time regularly with that Bhagavatam? And not just officially, I mean, that's better than nothing. And Prabhupada said, read the Bhagavatam. But in a deep way, like that illiterate Brahmana who's reading the Bhagavad Gita and he can't read it properly, doesn't understand what he's reading. Or in some versions, he can't read it at all. And Mahaprabhu sees that everyone's laughing at him. (laughs) But yet he's crying. Because his reading of Bhagavad Gita is actually deep. It's a meditative reading. So, of course, even if one reads Bhagavatam superficially, like Prabhupada says, even if someone just touches the book or just appreciates it, they'll take birth in a good family. Someone just looks at the paintings done by our BBT artists and touches the book uh, just for that. Even if that person's life is very sinful otherwise, even if that person is eating at McDonald's and gambling in Las Vegas and visiting the brothels and whatever, if they just touch one time in their life the Bhagavatam, they'll take birth in a good family. What to speak of someone who's really relishing the Bhagavatam? And if we do so, we'll find all of this. Uh, we'll find all of these that all of these descriptions are true. People may make so many claims, but when you actually take them up on it, you find, oh, it's not what I thought it would be. But here, it's beyond what we think it would be. <laughs> It's, it's beyond description. Upon gaining this, Krishna says, one thinks there is no greater gain. So how fortunate we are that this Bhagavatam, written in Sanskrit, and in often quite difficult Sanskrit, according to Bhaktivinoda Thakur, has been made accessible to us by Srila Prabhupada in English. which at the present time on the planet is the universal language, and then has been translated into so many languages. And not just the translations, but purports drawing from all the acharyas and bringing the Bhagavatam to our personal lives and our personal application. So how much fortunate are we? that we can have which has all this benefit so easily available without even any 
scholarship, how much we should take advantage of this Bhagavatam, both in quantity and in quality. So surely the Bhagavatam is something that we should study every day. Indeed, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, God himself, loved to read the Bhagavatam, especially in the company of his devotees. So Bhagavat Abhiram, which here is dear to the devotees, but we could also understand it's even dear to God. Even he who has really everything, even he finds unlimited, purifying, wonderful, compact, enchanting pleasure in this Bhagavatam. So, questions, comments... that also in Bhagavad Gita Prabhupada says that in terms of Sankhya Krishna is only giving a brief summary and that things are described further of course especially in the third canto of the Bhagavatam as well in other Shastras so I take such statements as again this Adbhuta that in one sense you can say and Prabhupada says this a lot and it's in the Shastra when you know Krishna you know everything But Krishna is always expanding, so it's not static. Or as Krishna says in the sixth chapter, upon gaining this, one thinks there is no greater gain. But it's not that one is satiated. So, in fact, if you have something beyond which there's nothing greater, if you really have the greatest thing that you cannot go beyond then that greatest thing, by definition, must be an expanding thing. Because something that's not expanding is not the greatest. Something that's always unfolding, something that has layers, uh, something that has mystery, is much greater. Oh, that's that's very nice. Actually, uh, I was just uh, studying Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's commentary on the tenth canto of Bhagavatam, and he's talking about how when the gopis are separated from Krishna and the Raslila, they're describing Krishna as a supreme lord, and he says that in separation one is aware of the opulences of the Lord. 
when in union one is unaware. So even in yoga maya there are times when one is aware, but it doesn't it doesn't disturb one's relationship, just like Yasoda seeing the universal form. She doesn't become disturbed, whereas Arjuna became disturbed in his relationship. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.